Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead, and uh, we hope that you find uh, not only this uh, particular podcast and the topic we're discussing today helpful, but we have a number of other resources, including uh, additional podcasts that cover a variety of topics related to multi-faith engagement and religion and popular culture. We also have uh, consulting services, recommended books, articles. So uh, please uh, take a few moments and uh, visit the website at multifaithmatters.org and uh, also take a look at our podcast page wherever you do your podcast listening, whether Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and of course our YouTube page as well, where you can subscribe. Uh, I'm pleased to have as a guest today, uh, Amos Young. I have followed his work for a number of years. Uh, Amos first came on my radar with his book, Beyond the Impasse, toward a pneumatological theology of religions. And uh, that was fascinating to me because uh, we tend to emphasize in evangelical circles a Christological uh, lens in terms of analysis and understanding how to relate to other religions. But this pneumatology was, I think, uh, an important facet. And I've continued to follow Amos's work ever since. Um, More recently than that, uh, another book of his that came on my radar was Hospitality and the Other. Pentecost, Christian Practices, and the Neighbor, and uh, we're going to be talking today about that topic of hospitality as it relates to multi-faith engagement. In fact, uh, Amos wrote a chapter on that in our book, A Charitable Orthopathy, Uh, and uh, we'll be talking about that today as well. Uh, Amos is uh, doing some great work at Fuller Theological Seminary. Amos, can you talk uh, talk about some of the things, what's your official capacity there at Fuller? Yeah, thanks, John. Appreciate the invitation to be on today. Um, I'm the chief academic officer at uh, the seminary, as well as the dean of the School of Mission and Theology. And my professorial title is Professor of Theology and Mission. Now, you've been uh, doing all kinds of work over the years. Uh, In addition to, uh, can you just mention a few of the book titles and, and topics and research areas? I think you started with pneumatology, and then you've continued up and done other things. What kinds of other topics have you covered? Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Um, you know, most of my early work uh, focus on interreligious uh, multi-faith engagement, um, but I've done a lot of work in Pentecostal studies, Pentecostal theology. I've done work in disability studies, disability theology, some political theology, some theology in science. I've got a book of sermons that is, that's been out. Um, and uh, yeah, just a, a range of, of miss- missiology texts. Uh, my last uh, six years here at Fuller Seminary, I've been in the School of Intercultural Studies uh, doing missiology, so I've got a handful of titles on uh, mission, mission engagement, missional church, missiology, uh, missional interpretation of scripture, and so on. Okay, we'll include uh, links to some of those works of yours in the program notes, and I would encourage folks to seek those out and pick them up and add them to your your library. You'll benefit from from reading that. Um, Today, we're going to talk about uh, hospitality, specifically in the context of uh, relating to people in other religious traditions. But uh, I always like to begin with my guests on a more personal note, and I'd like uh, you to share a little bit about your personal background, your, your biographical journey 
to Christianity? What did that look like? And how do you think that's shaped your approach to relating to other religious traditions? Yeah, well, um, my parents are Pentecostal ministers. Uh, so I was born into a Pentecostal, uh, you know, Pentecostal preacher's kid from the time I was basically conceived. I was actually born in the country of Malaysia. And, uh, you know, as I look back on the topic we're thinking about today and my interest in other faiths and other religions as well, I think part of that uh, immigration journey, uh, migrant kid, uh, third culture kid, uh, you know, preacher's kid coming from uh, Southeast Asia to the United States when I was 10 years old, basically, to do actually mission work in the United States. My parents came to um, uh, really serve in as ministers in uh, in the Northern California area to uh, minister to Chinese-speaking immigrants in Northern California in the mid-1970s. I didn't know it at that time, but uh, basically we were what's called reverse missionaries. You know, we just thought we were coming to pastor churches of immigrants. Uh, but uh, I learned later on when I became a missiologist that that's what we were as well, right? Reverse missionary mean, meaning that the West used to send missionaries to other uh, countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America. But in the last uh, you know, few decades, more and more individuals have come to the West, Europe and North America to, uh, for, for ministry and mission purposes. So that's, that's the phenomenon of, of reverse mission. But I think my experience of being, you know, crossing these international borders, crossing these cultural borders, my parents both come from basically Buddhist backgrounds, became Christian converts when they were, when they were young people. Um, so I've, I've kind of also, my interest in, in interfaith came up about as I realized that background in my family. Um, and, and I was led to, you know, attempt to understand that background a bit more as part of what's in uh, my life and my family's lives and our journeys. Again, journey across cultures, across nations. And so that idea of, of hospitality, I think, has uh, come out in part out of just my own attempts to understand myself, my family, folks like us, immigrants to, from one country to another, uh, transnationalism, globalization, open up all kinds of possibilities of crossing borders, crossing cultures. And in the process of that, you've got guests and hosts. You've got folks that, that arrive and folks that receive them or don't and so on. And uh, so I think it's a fascinating. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for asking me to think about uh, how aspects of my own, my own biography uh, might interface with some of these things. Yeah, in my experience, as I look back on my particular views and how they have changed over the years, I think uh, biography is intimately connected to our theology, whether we recognize it or not. You know, you and I have been interacting for a number of years via email and uh, other venues. And when you mentioned uh, being in Northern California, if I remember correctly, uh, I'm from Northern California too. I was born and raised in Stockton. And there you go. Okay, I, th I thought so. I thought we had the same, uh, same location there. I went to Lincoln High School. Uh, yeah, so what year did you graduate again? I graduated in 82. When did you graduate? Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I am an 83 grad. Okay, all right. I, I, I had Glenn Cornett for um, Calculus. And okay. Arlene, Arlene Wattel for English and Larry Smith for social science. <laughs> well, he still remembers. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can see that. I remember my uh, television production 
uh, my film uh, school uh, classes and things like that. But I, I yeah. thankfully I've forgotten the math and the algebra. And that, so. <laughs> well, we'll have, to, we'll have to compare friend lists sometime. I mean, I, I don't know that we have you know too many common friends, but that'll be interesting. To yeah, that would be. Yeah, I thought so. I just when you mentioned Northern California, I thought I thought you and I had some uh, the same stomping ground. So yeah, I don't know if you've been back to Stockton lately, but it is my parents quite my, a bit. My, my parents still live off Pershing Avenue, same house. Oh that, wow! Okay, same house I grew up in when I went to Lincoln. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah. My I, mom's I my regularly. mom still lives uh, on Rutledge Way, okay, uh, over there in Lincoln Village. So yeah, same, wow. Well, same so, hey, next next time next time you and I are out there, we should compare calendars and maybe connect. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, I uh, a few years ago, I developed a relationship with a professor at uh, University of the Pacific, and he had me come out and do a couple of guest lectures. So uh, who knows if he knows. Uh, you're in town. Maybe he'd uh, have you come out and do something too. So who knows? Anyway, uh, back uh, back to our <laughs> conversation about hospital and the other. Thank you for sharing some of that biography and that journey. Again, I think it's very helpful in understanding what has helped shape you and the views that you bring. Um, you also mentioned your Pentecostal background. How do you? How has your Pentecostalism provided a unique lens to your work in this area? Well, I think in actually two ways. One is, uh, you know, I think many of us know, you know, come from Pentecost, you know, that are familiar with Pentecostal churches, so come from them, know that uh, Pentecostals are, are probably one of the more uh, enthusiastic and motivated uh, evangelists and missionaries, right? I mean, uh, our passion for the gospel um, is one of our strengths, I think. On the flip side, I think oftentimes our strengths are also some of our, our weaknesses relative to you know, the emphasis on uh, Acts 1-8, and you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you shall be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Pentecostals are really, you know, really feel uh, commissioned and compelled by, by that kind of a text, including Matthew 28-18 and so on. But the point is that that emphasis on receiving the power of the Spirit to bear witness means that the Pentecostals are always eager to share their faith. Unfortunately, the flip side of that is that there are probably not well equipped or primed to listen as well to those that they're interacting with, right? Because they're maybe a bit too busy and focused on uh, sharing the gospel with others. Now, that's a, that's a great trait. I do think one of the challenges in a multi-faith world is how do you build relationships with people of other faiths? And part of building relationships is the ability to listen and listen well. Uh, so our strengths under, undermine, if you will, our, or underlie, underscore our weaknesses, right? Our strengths of, of, of sharing and, and eagerness of uh, imparting our, 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 you know, what we hold dear and inviting others into our experience sometimes doesn't allow us the ability to appreciate other, other folks' reality. And, and potentially even sometimes um, being willing to be invited into their spaces. So from that perspective, my Pentecostal background, you know, from as I started thinking theologically about um, our our missional commitments and how we looked at sometimes our dispositions toward people of other religions, uh, oftentimes uh, not much understanding of the other, except for the fact that they needed to convert into our position. And again, I I'm, I think conversion is an important part of interreligious uh, engagements and, and interfaces, but if if, if the majority of the time or all of the time we spend interacting with people of other faiths are to design to have them come over to our side, sometimes I think we might wonder why they might not be as responsive because we don't spend much time understanding them or being open to, to hearing them out, right? Which is the flip side of, of sharing. Or actually, that's the, 
you know, mutual sharing involves that sort of give and take. I think that the, the other part of my Pentecostal background, our emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit, I mean, that's in part what led to my doctoral, my doctoral research and the book that, the first book you referred to, right, was that how does uh, the work of the Spirit actually open up different perspectives on uh, interfaith relations than, than the one that I had been sort of uh, socialized into, which is that the Spirit empowers us to share. How, my question was, how does the Spirit also empower us to receive, if you will, from people in other faiths. Um, and so, so that's really been, I think, again, as you well, uh, well put it, you know, theology and biography are really intertwined. And from those perspectives, I think my journey into this area of multi-faith uh, interactions came out of my growing up Pentecostal, you know, and, uh, and, and then theologically reflecting on it. Yeah, gosh, as I was listening to you speak, so many thoughts going through my mind as to not only my interests, but also concerns that evangelicals might have just hearing these concepts. Let's unpack this idea of hospitality in a multi-faith context. Um, in your book, uh, Hospitality and the Other, you have a chapter with a great title, Performing Theology. Uh, in, as you know, in the, the Western Christian tradition, we tend to think of theology as a set of doctrines, it's ideas, it's things that we have to mentally adhere to. Um, and it's really not connected to this idea of performing that theology. Can you talk about what that's about? How, how do we perform theology? How do we perform doctrine in multi-faith context? And especially, uh, there's a phrase in that chapter you use called the mutuality of beliefs and practices. You talked a moment ago about not only giving, but receiving. And that can be very frightening, maybe even a no-go area for many conservative evangelicals. We have something to give. And they have something that is off limits and forbidden. And so we can't receive anything from them. Can you help, help un unpack that uh, hospitality and the other in terms of uh, performing our theology in that way? Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, thanks for the question. Um, well, it, you know, uh, going back to my reference to Acts 1-8, for example, earlier, right? So Acts 1-8 is, if you will, um, a statement uh, recorded by Luke as part of his writing the book of Acts. Yet for Pentecostals, and again, this may be, well, I think this is uh, not just a Pentecostal issue, but I think Christians as well perform their, their beliefs oftentimes in ways that we don't recognize. But, but just to use that example, so when Pentecostals read Acts 1.8, they don't just say, oh, that's really nice intellectually, right? But, but it's, and you shall receive power after the Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. So the meaning and significance of that verse is found not just in, oh, that's nice. It's good information. But, oh, wow, if we receive the Holy Spirit, then we are enabled to do something. Be bold, be courageous, uh, be, be uh, you know, approach our neighbors, our, our friends, uh, strangers even, um, and sh share the gospel with them. So that's what I mean when I'm referring to how beliefs and practices are actually intertwined. In fact, the most robust beliefs are probably what they are because they inspire us to live in certain ways, behave in certain ways, act in certain ways. Now, let's take this idea of hospitality then that invites both belief, uh, sharing, uh, you know, uh, speaking and, and listening. How does that get worked out? Well, here's the flip side. This is, what interests, this is what's so interesting about how sometimes uh, any one of us, not just Pentecostals, but Christians across the spectrum, have selective uh, emphases on, on what in scripture they want to lift up, right? So 
Acts 1-8 is really important to the Pentecostal imagination because it really talks about how we are empowered to share our faith with, with others. What's also so interesting is in Acts chapter 2, when Luke unfolds, unfolds how the people of God, the apostles, were filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, yes, it does say, and they spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance, Acts 2-4. But twice in the next few verses, it says, and they heard, and they heard them speaking in other languages. And they heard, and, uh, you know, the Galilean says, uh, the Galileans, and others, how come we hear them speaking about God's amazing deeds of power in our own languages? Luke records, right? So, so that suggests that the speaking was certainly important, but equally important in this Pentecost event is the fact of hearing, hearing the wondrous works of God declared in other languages from out of the mouths of, other, of, of others, if you will. And so that's my, first of all, challenge to myself as a Pentecostal, my invitation to my other Pentecostal brothers and sisters, but really because the Acts chapter two doesn't just belong to one church and one group of people. Acts two belongs to everybody that, that confesses Jesus as Lord and seeks to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Acts two therefore invites us to be, if you will, almost doubly listeners uh, as much as we might aspire to and invite the Holy Spirit to use us to share the gospel with others, right? So I would say that, that this whole idea of the inter intertwining of, of uh, beliefs and practices invites us to pray this way, Lord, help me to be bold. Fill me with your spirit to be bold to share, uh, share about Christ with others on the one hand. But then we want, want to pray twice as much, Lord, how do I listen? Holy Spirit, come upon me, enable my ears to hear and understand the story of my neighbor. Give me ears to hear and see how you are doing wondrous things in my neighbor's life. Maybe even though my neighbor may not be a Christ follower. I mean, if God's really at work in the world and all around us, how do we recognize what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world, in our neighbors? And maybe by being able to recognize the works and, and acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of our neighbors, we might actually be able to share a different facet of the gospel with them that we might uh, might not be able to really articulate because we're so busy observing, uh, you know, just uh, paying attention to what God is doing in my life, for instance. So, so that's some of the ways in which I think thinking about beliefs and practices together, thinking about scripture and on both sides of the coin, if you will, uh, the, full, the full witness of scripture. And as we embrace what God is telling us in scripture, how do we then also pray, come Holy Spirit, enable us to live out uh, these scriptural truths or these scriptural invitations in ways that, uh, in our case, in, this, in the case of this discussion, you know, in ways that allow us to interact with people of other faiths um, and perhaps share the gospel with them in, in, in their new ways because we first listen and listen well. I think that's tremendously important uh, to given boldness. We usually think that we are, we are we're given power and boldness to go and share, but I think many evangelicals stop short of boldness to listen. Um, let me play devil's advocate, if you will, here. How would you respond to a Christian who uh, is fearful uh, of contamination? Um, it, it's one thing, we have trouble getting evangelicals interested in dialogue, let alone this idea of hospitality, where it might be one thing to have somebody over into my home, but you've also said we need to be uh, recipients of others' hospitality. What would you say to those evangelicals who are fearful of contamination in that context where we can be emboldened to go into those spaces 
in a way, embracing a form of weakness, yet it, one that's also curiously a, a manifestation of Christ's power. Can you address that? Yeah, no, that's a real important question. Um, and I think it's a very valid one. And we ought to be discerning. We ought to be careful. We ought to be cautious. Um, and I do think, John, that the kind of work you do, the podcasts that you're generating, um, the resources that you're providing uh, believers who are, who are interested in and, and maybe open to taking some of these steps are important, right? Because I think at the end of the day, uh, we can't do this as isolated individuals. Um, you know, another, a prior generation's paradigm might have said that uh, we act individualistically. And of course, we are individuals and we need to take individual responsibility. But at the end of the day, I do think we, uh, we, 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 we ought to be a part of a community that allows us to take these steps, supports us in the process, gives us resources to be discerning, gives us, uh, you know, a, a group of, of believers who, who are able to share the experiences of these kind of journeys and, and ask hard questions and, and find a way, you know, others to help, help them think through uh, the implications and, and, and all of these things. I think the, the dangers usually happen when people sort of wander off on their own and think they can do this on their own. And, and then there's no community that really helps them to process this part of this journey. So, so I do think on the practical side is how do you take this journey not, not as uh, an not merely as an individual, but as part of a, an effort of the, on a part of the body of Christ, folks like yourself, um, who really want to put on, if you will, another face, another, another uh, you know, approach. And, and how do we explore the, the ramifications of what's positive and what's challenging about that together? I think that's really important. I, the last thing, though, I'll say, just to, as a word of encouragement, theologically, is if you think that you might be worried and anxious about this, that's totally okay. Because, yeah, life is an invitation to what's God going to do tomorrow that might be new, that might be challenging, that might be this uh, unco uncomfortable for me. What's God calling me to, to engage with? that's beyond my, my, my horizons, that's outside the box of what I'm familiar with. Um, if, if we're not scared by some of those things, then we're not actually being disciples, I don't think. If you think about it, Lord Jesus Christ, as, uh, as the Son of God, came to this earth. I mean, you think this was, you think this was uh, uh, a safe place? I mean, he actually died in the process, by the way. It wasn't a safe space. A safe space. It was a risk. Um, the Holy Spirit coming upon us and entering into our hearts. That's the Holy Spirit becoming guest in our lives. You think our lives are safe spaces for God, given what we do? I don't think so. God himself took a risk in his son, taking on flesh. The Holy Spirit takes risk, if you will, every moment, because we're just as liable to sin against the Holy Spirit and grieve the Holy Spirit as we are to be to be, if you will, hospitable, welcoming uh, uh, bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, so we're not alone here. In fact, if we, if we, if we challenge ourselves to, to, to step out into the far country, into uncomfortable spaces, we're actually following in the footsteps of Jesus of Nazareth. And we're actually, if you will, now responding to the call of the Holy Spirit in exactly the same comes to our bodies and takes up our bodies as the Spirit's temple with a lot of fear and trembling. I'm, 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 I'm sort of anthropomorphizing, uh, if you will, the experience of the, of the Spirit. 
But my point is a theological one, right? That the invitation to cross borders and, to, and into different spaces is the invitation that is set by the triune God in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. And the, and the Spirit and Jesus do exactly that. And that's why they invite us to that. They're not invited us to do something that, if you will, Jesus and the Spirit haven't already done in some fundamental way. I appreciate your reminder about the element of, of risk involved in the Christian faith going all the way back to Jesus himself. I, our mutual friend and colleague, Terry Muck, has uh, drawn upon the parable of the talents in his writing on uh, multi-faith engagement. And he, he notes in that parable, it's the one who risks the investment that is the one that's rewarded. So we have to we, we have to be careful and cautious, as you mentioned, but we also have to be willing to, to risk at the same time. So create, create. Creation itself was God's big risk. Yeah. Every one of us, every, every one of us is God's risk, right? Because there's no guarantee that we'll respond to Jesus, to his call. Yeah. God's taken a risk. And, and I think, yeah. So some would, I mean, say I'm, some would say I'm riskier than others. So yeah. Oh, I, 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 I would definitely <laughs> say that. Amen to that. <laughs> uh, as I, I look at this material on hospitality, uh, whether it's in the context of multi-faith engagement or not, I'm just struck by the importance of that practice to early Christianity. And yet it seems to me, looking at my own evangelical tradition, that we really have lost sight of that, that we, we, the fellowship is more inward focused, the hospitality is extended within the household of faith, and we've lost sight of extending that to others. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of this as an ancient Christian practice? And there's a phrase you use uh, in your writing, where you talk about that we as Christians need to be vessels for divine hospitality to the world. I love that phrase. Yeah. Well, I do think that part of that has to do with is, is sociological historical, meaning that I do think evangelicals historically have been hospitable in both senses, particularly in their risking the crossing the borders uh, and, the, and, and responding that are called to be missionaries abroad, right? So, so leaving one's home and going into, you know, other parts of the world. My parents came to know Jesus as a result of assembly's gone missionaries going to Malaysia, for instance, you know, and, and what I think we often hear from our missionaries who come back on furlough in the, in the, old, in the old style is that they, they often tell, give testimony of how they've been impacted and transformed because of their journeys abroad, right? Which is exactly what we would expect would happen because they're, they're now meeting people on, on, the, on their home territory. They're being vulnerable because, you know, whenever you step into the, the home of somebody else, you abide by their rules, basically. And oftentimes I think our missionaries have found that, that people uh, in these other cultures, I mean, they only survived because they were welcome and supported and embraced and, and allowed in uh, to the lives of other people to, to find support, to find encouragement, to find new community and so on. And so um, the, the stories of our missionaries, and oftentimes I think our missionaries reflect a deep level of transformation as a result of spending time in other cultures and interacting with people of other, of other cultures and other traditions and other languages. And, and they tell about that uh, in, when, when, when they come back home, so to speak, right? So, our missionaries, I think, have been the primary embodiments of how we take risks, become vulnerable in other, in other contexts. I think what's new in our time, uh, John, is that um, as we know about the phenomenon of reverse mission and given the phenomenon of migration, 
I mean, I mean, just talk about the fact right now that, you know, in 2020, 2021, uh, we're consumed with immigration here in the United States. And, and in part, part of the reason why I think is because a historically dominant white culture of America, which by the way, we got our country and our land from our native American brothers right. and sisters to begin with. That's, that's for somebody else to talk about at another time, but it's, but here's, here's the point. Um, white American culture is now being diversified by a multitude of folks from around the world, uh, different languages, different cultures, and even different religious traditions. And all of a sudden, it's kind of like, oh, we thought we were just sending missionaries to those folks out there. They're now coming to us. That's a bit uncomfortable, right? Because, because now a small group of us that bore the responsibility of being vulnerable and taking risks now there's a sense in which all of us are confronted with that invitation. Are we going to become vulnerable? Are we going to take risks with people who are different from us, who are now uh, working, working alongside in our jobs, who are going to school with? I mean, you know, we talked about going to high school together, but yet separately. I mean, I, right, right. Asian, I, was, a, I was an Asian-American immigrant at that time. Most of my friends were Asian-American in high school. Yeah. I'm assuming most of your friends were white. Right. Nature right. of what I was in, in Lincoln High School in, in the early 1980s. Um, Lincoln High School today, I'm assuming, is much more diverse than right. it was when you and I were students there. And so now we're, we're, our, our, our schools are much more diverse. Our workplaces are much more diverse. And we're all now wondering, okay, what does it mean for us to live in this multi... This is a multicultural society. It's not just our missionaries going to other parts of the world that have to encounter other cultures. It's us. And, and from that perspective, I do think that the divine hospitality, if you will, that I shared just a few moments ago in the incarnation of Pentecost is something that you and I are invited to. And oftentimes we assume that that means that we invite people of other faiths into our homes. And I think we should. How do we welcome them and host them in ways that make them feel comfortable to step foot into our houses? And doesn't that really open-hearted and open-handed invitation require that we act in ways that, that if you will, motivates them to invite us into their homes, right? So how many of us have ever acted with regard to people of other faiths with the goal of getting invited back into their spaces? How would we act differently to, with people of other faiths if the goal was not just to share with them and invite them to confess Jesus, that should be part of the goal. But if the goals include it as well, how do we act in ways that they really like us and they want us to, 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 um, to, to come into their houses? And then how would I act differently if now I step, I cross the threshold like Cornelius, uh, like, like Peter, when he crossed the threshold into Cornelius' home? How would I act differently? And, and by the way, Peter said, when he crossed the threshold into Cornelius' home, he said, now I understand, he said, right? how God shows no favoritism and basically welcomes and embraces those in every culture who love and respond to him in their way, right? It, it's sort of like even the, will, even the capacity to be invited into others to other people's homes involves them sensing our curiosity, our, our wonderment, our actual interest in, wow, you're different. Tell me more. I want to know more about you, your story, um, what you've had, what you've been through as an immigrant, or whatever, your, your language, your, your family. It's very different from mine. I want to know more, 
And I think if we actually acted with people like that, eventually we will exhaust the time they're spending in our house over our meal table. And they'll say, we got to pick up this conversation because, and, and let's do it at my, my house instead next time, because we've just barely scratched the surface of, of learning about one another. Um, that's the kind of approach I think that, that embodies the kind of hospitality that incarnation and Pentecost reflect. And, and that's how we then also embody God's hospitality to the world. Not just because we've given them the four spiritual laws and invited them to confess, uh, pray the sinner's prayer, which if that happens, great, right? But what's the next step? Well, the next step is discipleship. What does discipleship entail? Again, mutual vulnerability, mutual hospitality, uh, the willingness to step into their spaces, experience life in their shoes for a few moments so that we can then also be impacted and transformed. I guess at the end of the day, what I would say, John, is that conversion ought to be both ways, right? Even if, even if people do confess Jesus as Lord, part of my ongoing discipleship before Jesus is that I die daily to who I am. And I be raised to life daily in accordance with a body of Christ that speaks in many tongues, in many languages, is reflective of people from many nations, tribes, cultures, and kings. Revelation tells us, Acts 2 reveals to us. How does my life become transformed more and more into the image of a multicultural body of Christ. And how do I do that if none of my if all my friends are like me? All my friends are Asian Americans and I've got no other friends that are non-Asian Americans, right? Um, that process of being transformed means I've got to be converted from a day-to-day -day basis. In fact, my conversion to Jesus requires my daily conversion, my being challenged by, my meeting others in the body of Christ, outside the body of Christ as his, if you will, voice and his invitation to me on my journey. Yeah, I think all that's tremendously important, that uh, mutual vulnerability. You mentioned uh, basically mutual persuasion. And I think that's one thing that's a little frightening for evangelicals. Again, we want to go in and persuade others and proclaim, but we don't want to risk uh, possibility, even giving them the openness, the opportunity to try and persuade us. But I think that's part of that risk process that's involved. Um, well, let me say, let me say one yeah. more thing about that, because um, you know, oftentimes we think of conversion as just intellectual. Confess Jesus as Lord. But what is that? What does real conversion to Jesus actually entail? That our hearts are transformed, right? That, that initial confession after the force, you know, the sharing of the four spiritual laws, just to use that example, right? If that's not followed by heart transformation, we call it regeneration, a change of a way of life, a change of our loves, our hopes, our desires, the, the real deep parts of who we are in our bodies and our in our in our beings then that conversion doesn't get followed through, right? It's sort of like we signed up, we said a sinner's prayer, but then we went back and lived our old way of lives. And so really what we're talking about in terms of genuine conversion, meaning under the Lordship of Christ, is not just intellectual conversion, but heads, hands, and hearts. Uh, heads, hands, and hearts, meaning our, 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 the innermost parts of who we are are transformed, and that takes a lifetime. In our hands, meaning our, our behaviors are transformed, right? We start acting like followers of Christ. So that's for us. Our, that, that's a call for our ongoing conversion is, is part of my point. And, and from that perspective, I would say that the conversion that we seek of other people to, to Christ uh, ought to go hand in hand with our attending to our ongoing conversion to Christ. And that'll happen in that relationship, I believe you know, where our hearts continue to be transformed, not just because we learn intellectually about other religious beliefs and, and people of other faiths, but we're transforming the relationship we have with them. 
that's a relational conversion that we that we experience and what I believe uh, ongoing conversion to Jesus involves. Uh, I mentioned at the introduction uh, to our conversation that uh, you were a contributor to our book, A Charitable Orthopathy, and uh, you did a, a great chapter. Before We were talking before we began the, the podcast that you were saying you thought that was one of the more uh, important contributions in your body of work. Why is that? Can you talk a little bit about that chapter? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it was certainly an extension and building off of my, my work on hospitality that you referred to, which was published in 2008. And, and maybe we can sort of, you know, close, close with this particular point. Sure. That uh, I, I do believe that one of the reasons why that orthopathic dimension is, is so important is because it really names really where fears are, where our worries are, where our concerns are, right? What do we, at the end of, our fears our worries, our anxieties at the end of the day are really those things that are from our, the depths of our hearts. Intellectually, if you will, um, we can always objectify ideas and, and, and we can entertain from a distance ideas. Oh yeah, what's it like to learn about what Buddhists believe? What's it like to learn about what you know, Muslims believe? Uh, can we read the Quran uh, and, and understand it intellectually? Can we read the Bhagavad Gita and, and, the, and the Tao Te Ching and understand that intellectually? But, you know, part of the challenge of, of scripture is that it invites not just intellectual understanding, but it invites heart conversion. And see, that's where we start getting worried. I don't want to be converted in my heart to the Quran. I don't want to be converted in my heart to the Bhagavad Gita. I don't want to be converted in my heart to the Tao Te Ching. Um, what do you think other people of other faiths, why do you think people of other faiths are worried about Christianity? Right, they're they're worried for the same reasons, right? Because they their hearts have a certain allegiance in a certain direction, and and at the end of the day, the pathic dimension, the affective dimension, the heart dimension is the deepest part of who we are. It names our biggest fears, our biggest fears of being overrun by immigrants, our biggest fears of being overrun by by other religions, our biggest fears of being of being threatened by other cultures. Um, now, I'm not saying that none of those fears are, are real. They are real. They're real because they're, they exist in the depths of our hearts. And I think that orthopathic dimension, naming that orthopathic dimension in this multi-faith uh, square is therefore most important because it really puts uh, in, in, in proper context that what we really uh, ought to be attentive to is not just the Quran as words or the Bhagavad Gita as words, but what they represent in terms of the ways of life uh, that they that they call their their devotees to embody how the Bible calls us to embody different things and, and so that really I think puts a shoe in the other foot because it really helps us to really see now let's get back to what have we been talking about in terms of what scripture calls us how we so selectively identify the doctrines right that are important and we so selectively read scripture so that we embody only a, a very small percentage of what it really invites in terms, of, in terms of, of the journey of discipleship. And part of my point is that I think naming this orthopathic dimension helps us to appreciate both our fears and recognize the fears of immigrants, like my family, as we came to the United States 45 years ago and had to worry about all the differences we were encountering and had to be open to being transformed by our culture, to being assimilated into our culture, just in order to survive. And, and how that's the story and narrative of immigrants around the world, and even to our country today. And what does it mean then for us to welcome them in this, in this very, very tentative space in which we've just 
been through a transition, you know, the inauguration of the Biden administration yesterday, that doesn't mean that, that all of the rhetoric and all of the policies of the prior administration now all of a sudden disappear. I mean, the, the Trump administration and its efforts, I think, have actually named a lot of our fears mm-hmm. as Americans, as evangelicals, as white evangelicals, as evangelicals of color. And, and all of this then, I think, needs to be put back on the table because it, it, it comes back to say, how do we read the Bible? And how do we internalize scripture in ways that allow us to interact with people of other cultures and faiths and traditions in new and more gospel edifying ways? How do we allow ourselves to be transformed? Uh, and how do, we, how do we live out this transformative discipleship that God calls us to in this space? These are worrying and, and, and fearful issues, for, I think, for many of us. Um, but I also believe that, that Scripture addresses many of those worries and fears and calls us to embrace these worries and fears together and actually even together with people of other religious traditions on the path. I think we certainly face our challenges as evangelicals and non-evangelicals in a post-Trump world. And uh, I thank you for bringing your wisdom and your insight and everything to it and carving time at a busy schedule uh, to, to have this conversation today. Amos. Thanks again, John, for inviting me. And God bless you in your work. And uh, I look forward to more interactions as we have opportunity. Sounds great. Again, my guest has been Amos Young of Fuller Theological Seminary. Be sure and check the program notes for links to his webpage at the seminary, as well as uh, some of the books that he's written over the years. And uh, take a look at our website at multifaithmatters.org for additional resources. Please rate the podcast if you find it helpful. And of course, we're a nonprofit organization. And if you find this ministry helpful, please consider supporting us with your prayers and your finances. Again, I'm your host, John Moorhead for Multi-Faith Matters. Thank you for listening and watching.